This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, today is the 60th anniversary of one of the most tragic and shocking events in American history. And sometimes people, both callers, listeners, and even just people in my personal life, they'll say to me, why do you spend so much time talking about what is ancient history? Why don't you spend more time looking at what's happening now? For starters, I do spend a lot of time talking about what's happening now. But second, I really do think that the assassination of John F. Kennedy ushered in a whole new era in American history, the likes of which we're just dealing with now. On the part of the public, it's my belief that this began a new era of cynicism and skepticism where all of a sudden the People were willing to question everything. To some extent, maybe that's good. To another extent, maybe that's not so good. Additionally, it raises so many questions about the so-called deep state or the security state. It raises questions about foreign policy. It raises questions about government secrecy. It raises questions that are still being dealt with to this day. Um, if you need any evidence of that, take a look at the fight that people have over what records from 50 and 60 years ago are still being released. It raises questions about the role of organized crime in the criminal justice system and in our political system. Whenever you have a president assassinated, it's a big deal. Whenever you have questions about who that president's assassin actually was, that's a big deal. And whenever you have that assassin assassinated, That's a very big deal. And I think the fact that uh, many members of the public still don't buy the official story of the Warren Commission shows there is still some serious doubts in the minds of a lot of public. And people are still interested in this. So I wanted to invite on uh, two real experts in this field. And I have to tell you, both of them are so convincing and so good that after my interviews with each of them, I was convinced. I, they had won me over to their point of view on these things. So I thought to myself, both of these guys are much smarter than me. Why don't we just get them together and see if they can deal with these issues that they raise with one another? Because I'm not smart enough or well-versed enough to know um, all everything that they do. So I want to welcome back. Fred Litwin, who's a veteran marketing professional and the author of, among other books, Oliver Stone's Flim Flam, The Demagogue of Dealey Plaza. Fred, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for staying up late with us. 
Uh, uh, thank you. It's great to be here. Also, I want to welcome back Lamar Waldron, a man who's been described as one of the best investigative journalists in the country and the author of several books on the Kennedy assassination, including The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. Lamar, it's been a long time. Thank you for joining me. Great to be with you again, Frank, and, I, and I'm really glad we, uh, you know, we have broadcasters like you who are still willing to talk about things like the JFK assassination. Well, let me begin with that, with both of you guys. Maybe that's an area where all three of us can agree, and hopefully the public will too. Why um, does this still matter? Why, uh, 60 years after uh, President Kennedy's death, should people like me still be spending this amount of time on this? Uh, Fred, let me begin with you. Do you think it still merits public attention? Well, I think it merits public attention in that we want to remember somebody who brought a great deal of enthusiasm to America. But I think the more important point where it really merits attention is that it's time that we really said goodbye to some of these conspiracy theories. And in fact, conspiracy theories are doing us no good. They're harming a lot of people. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of harm done to innocent victims along the way um, by people like Oliver Stone and other people. I can name you a whole list of victims of JFK conspiracy theory, theorists. It's not, a, it, it's, it's not a harmless activity. It actually hurts people along the way, and we have to understand what's going on. Uh, Lamar, uh, first of all, let me get you to answer my question. Why do you think it's still important that we talk about this? And two, uh, let me get you to respond to what Fred said there, that uh, conspiracy theorists, which I presume would include you, are actually being harmful to the public discourse on this. Well, I would take just the opposite case. But one reason it's still very important to talk about JFK's murder Excuse me. Is that uh, uh, in in violation of the law, the 1992 JFK Assassination Records Act? Several agencies of the U.S. government are continuing to hide most of the, well, in fact, all of the top ten most important JFK assassination records that are still being withheld. Congress passed that law unanimously in the early 90s. Uh, I believe it was 1992, in the wake of the Oliver Stone movie, which was a good movie, not great history. I would certainly agree with Fred about that. Uh, and and basically, the agencies have just played a game of whack-a-mole and keep-away with Congress and the American public and the press, like yourself. And we need to get those files and tapes and transcripts released, because... Um, people have heard of the Warren Commission. That was only the first and least informed of the five government investigating committees. Each of the later committees found evidence of conspiracy, including the last government investigating committee that that law created in the 1990s. Well, Lamar, uh, I want to get into the records issue uh, a little bit later with both of you guys. But when you talk about evidence, before we get into your theory about uh, who might have been part of any assassination plan, or a cover-up. Let's talk about the evidence that suggests that there was more than one shooter. If there was more than one shooter, that would imply that there is a conspiracy theory. What, what is there? What concrete proof or what evidence suggests there was more than one shooter? Yeah, I don't think it suggests. I think it proves it conclusively. I'm sure Fred might disagree. But JFK's two closest aides were in the limo right behind him, Kenneth O'Donnell and Dave Powers. And uh, they said and told that Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill in the 1980s, a classic you know, uh, Democratic uh, Speaker of the House, very powerful, credible guy, 
they said, look, the first shot came from the front, from the grassy knoll area, and that's why, as you can see in the Zapruder film, JFK's limo slowed down because the Secret Service driver didn't want to drive into an ambush. So, he, of course, he hit the brakes because the first shot came from the front, hit JFK in the throat, just below the Adam's apple, and then Powers and O'Donnell both confirmed that that last horrible fatal headshot also came from the front. And by the way, two Secret Service agents in that same limo also testified about shots from the front, the grassy knoll area. So, so I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's two credible guys who had no reason to lie. And, and when Tip O'Neill said, look, why didn't you guys tell the Warren Commission that? And, and if you go back and look at the Warren Commission testimony, they kind of dance around it, but eventually just kind of downplay it. And they both told Tip O'Neill that, that basically they were told not to. So, so you have that. The magic bullet is called the magic bullet because it, it is magic. It didn't happen. You can't strike a man in the back five and a half inches below the top of his collar at a steep downward angle, which is you know, where, what the, the book depository was at that point, and then somehow have that bullet magically fly upward. And as the magic bullet theory claims, then fly out of, they, they say that, that uh, front small throat wound of entrance with an exit wound, fly up and then dive down and hit Governor Conley, who clearly was not hit by the same bullet, both because Conley says that. And you can see Conley in the Zapruder film. He's clearly holding his white Stetson hat in his right hand after the magic bullet theory says, you know, his, he had been shot and his wrist was shattered and all that sort of stuff. So, so basically, the magic bullet theory is magic. And, and, and by the way, I, I would say this. I, I don't think conspiracy theorists or those that believe in conspiracy, as Robert Kennedy himself believed, and many other government officials, I don't think that's causing conspiracy theories. I think one big uh, driver of that is that these agencies, the Secret Service, the CIA, Naval Intelligence, and the FBI, are withholding so much okay. information well, that the law requires they we'll, we'll release. Come back. We'll come back to the, uh, the issue of the documents being withheld, because I think irrespective of how people feel about that, that, that to some extent that is a, a separate issue. Um, we'll bring in Fred Litwin. Fred, um, what you heard there uh, from the uh, the recounting of the aides, where they saw gunshots coming from, and the single bullet theory or the magic bullet theory that says the bullet hit Kennedy in the back, exited his neck, entered Connolly in the right armpit, then exited his chest and went through his right wrist and then embedded in his left thigh it does seem hard to believe. Now, just if, if for folks that haven't heard our previous conversation, you used to buy into that there was a conspiracy and you uh, the more research you've done led you in another direction. Start with the single bullet theory. Do you think that what Fred is saying, excuse me, that what uh, Lamar is saying, what others have said, that it's tough to believe? Do you lend any credence to that? Well, it may, be, it may very well be tough to believe. It doesn't mean it's not true. I mean, the fact is they were perfectly aligned. Uh, Mr. Waldron has the entrance wound wrong on Kennedy's back. It's, it's right at the base of his neck. The pictures, <laughs> you can see the pictures. Don't, please don't laugh. I, I think if you want to have a civil debate on here. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I shouldn't have laughed. You should, because otherwise I'll just hang up the phone. I have no interest in... in sure. uh, we're all gentlemen here. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, Fred. Well, I hope so. Um, we have pictures of back. We know exactly where the back wound is. We know the two men are aligned. They're aligned perfectly. Um, and it, that's the way a bullet would, the bullet 
humbled after exiting Kennedy's neck. We know it's an exit wound because of the way the shirt collar, the fibers are pointed outward. Even Cyril Wecht knows that, that the wound in Kennedy's throat is an exit wound. The bullet that hit Con- was tumbling, the bullet that hit Connolly in the back around his armpit was almost sideways. We know it wasn't a, a, a full-on strike. The bullet was tumbled further and went through the wrist, wrist almost backwards. It was flattened. The bullet was flattened, lost some, some of his lead core. It's perfectly, uh, perfectly compatible with the, with the injuries to the two men. There's nothing unscientific about the single bullet theory. They were aligned perfectly. I was shocked when I saw the trajectory diagrams by the HSCA. And by the way, Mr. Waldron, you may think the HSCA said conspiracy. They said Lee Harvey Oswald fired three shots and killed JFK. You know that. You also know that they based their conspiracy theory or conspiracy conclusion on the acoustics evidence, which was rendered inadmissible, which was rendered wrong by the National Academy of Sciences. Well, I, I, I would take issue with everything Fred has said. If, 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 if you're finished, please go ahead. Didn't mean to interrupt. Well, I just want to say one, one more thing, that every single forensic pathologist who, examined, who has examined JFK's x-rays and photographs has come back and said JFK was hit twice from behind. They all say that, every single forensic pathologist. Just so I'm clear, Fred, though, and I've interviewed Sarah Wecht, and I didn't go back and re-listen to that interview prior to this segment, uh, from what I recall, Cyril Wecht uh, does not buy the single bullet theory, does he? No, he does, he does not buy the single bullet theory. He's wrong about that. But when he examined the autopsy x-rays and photographs in 1972, he was adamant that Kennedy was only hit from behind. When he testified before the Rockefeller Commission, under oath, he said with reasonable medical certainty, GFT was only hit from behind. When he testified before the HSCA, under oath, he said with reasonable medical certainty, JFK was hit from behind. Uh, Lamar, let me get you to respond to what, uh, what Fred sure. like I say, said. I'd like to respond. And, and again, I apologize for laughing. The reason I did was, so the Warren Commission, they knew that it was, the bullet was a back wound. It was five and a half inches below the top of the collar. And, and a document was finally released in the 1990s that showed Gerald Ford, who our later president and vice president, uh, was a member of the Warren Commission. He realized that was a problem. And it, and it made Arlen Specter, who was an investigator for the committee, a, uh, uh, you know, it was impossible. So he literally moved the, uh, the uh, back wound up so that it became a back-of-the-neck wound instead of a back wound, because otherwise it's simply the magic bullet theory is, is impossible. You know, I mean, it, it just is. Look, the, the, the doctors, so, so the autopsy doctors, Weck, everybody else, and, and, and again, Weck today does not believe in the single bullet theory. You were right about that, Frank. Uh, the Dallas doctors who, who talked about it said, yeah, that, that wound was an entrance wound in the front. It was a very small entrance wound. And then what they did was they did a tracheotomy incision in that. Now, that was a very small tracheotomy incision, as all the Dallas doctors testified. When JFK's body got to Bethesda Naval Hospital, just as the plans, the government that Bobby Kennedy had been directing about what to do if an American official was assassinated that fall. Uh, So it goes to Bethesda Naval Hospital, no autopsy in Dallas. You can see the pictures, gory, uh, online from uh, an autopsy photo where that that wound is, is huge and jagged. So the autopsy doctors at Bethesda, they did not 
ever get to see that wound in its pristine shape. In fact, they didn't even know that night of the autopsy, JFK had been shot in, in the throat. So, so again, like I say, it's just, it's just impossible. And, and now there was one man. So there was only, you know, there were the emergency room doctors in Dallas. There were the three autopsy doctors in uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital, where the body was was almost forcibly taken by the Secret Service, but that was, you know, what what Bobby Kennedy's plans made that fall had, had said should happen. And uh, but there was one man who saw JFK's body in Dallas, knew about that throat wound, and he was at Bethesda Naval Hospital. And as as I clearly documented in my book, he was calling the shots at at the autopsy. And and I'm I'm the only person that's interviewed. Bobby Kennedy was in was with Jackie Kennedy in the family suite, several floors floors higher, and Bobby was on the phone with one of his top aides, and then that aide was relaying Bobby Kennedy's instructions to Admiral Berkeley, JFK's personal physician, who was in Dallas and at the at Bethesda, and it was basically Bobby Kennedy through Admiral Berkeley who was controlling that autopsy, um, and people probably heard JFK's brain is missing. It sure is. I'm very confident Bobby Kennedy wound up with, with all of that kind of, of evidence. And so, and again, people have written entire books, and I'm sure Fred would agree on the autopsy, and, and a lot of people uh, disagree with, with statements Fred had made. And I would just encourage people, you know, re- read up on the autopsy yourself. A lot of questions has, have been raised. Uh, but like I say, all the, the doctors who saw that entrance wound in Dallas before the tracheotomy incision say that it was a wound of entrance. And, and by the way, that, like I say, that wound was hugely enlarged from the way it was in Dallas by the time the official autopsy started. And, and I think I'm one of the few people who's ever explained with any kind of documentation why, you know, who, who was digging in the front of JFK's throat to greatly enlarge that wound and what was well, let me get Let me get for? Fred uh, to respond. Uh, Fred uh, Litwin, and by the way, if people yeah. are just uh, tuning in, we're talking with uh, Fred Litwin. He's the author of uh, several books, including Oliver Stone's Flim Flam, Film Flam, excuse me, Film Flam, The Demagogue of Dealey Plaza, and uh, Lamar Waldron, whose books include The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination. They are on opposite ends of uh, their conclusion about whether or not Oswald acted alone. Go ahead, Fred. Well, if you look at the the Parkland doctors, their job was not to examine the wounds. Their job was to resuscitate the president. They had a very limited amount of time. There were a lot of people in that room. They were working frantically. So when when he came in and they saw there was a small wound in his throat, Dr. Perry, the person who did the tracheotomy, didn't even have time to wipe off the blood. He immediately did that. There were only a few people who saw that wound before they did the tracheotomy. And yes, of course, it did look like an entrance wound. But that's why we have autopsies. Because operating room doctors, attending physicians, often make mistakes. We have, there's a reason why we have autopsies. Because we don't rely on, on people like Dr. Perry. Even he recognized, yeah, it looked like an entrance wound. But you know what? His experience in dealing with wounds was with basically civilian ammunition, not with military ammunition. Looked like an entrance wound, but it wasn't. Um, this is why it's so silly. I mean, they only had 15, 20 minutes with Kennedy. They weren't there to examine the wounds. 
Let, let me ask you this, Fred. Uh, obviously, you know, Lamar, even if you may disagree with his conclusions, he seems like a very intelligent guy, certainly a very uh, well-researched guy. There are a lot of smart people that uh, believe that there was a conspiracy. Uh, uh, Gary Hart, for instance, the former senator. Uh, John Kerry, I think, has said uh, he believes that there was a conspiracy. People like uh, Jesse Ventura, who may not be uh, much of an academic, but he's got common sense smarts that I think people would acknowledge. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., for all his quirks and all his controversies, I don't think anybody doubts his intelligence. Why do so many intelligent people draw a different conclusion if, as you point out the facts, they seem so obvious? The problem here is that many very important people are not immune to conspiracy fever, and, 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 yeah, a lot of very important people, a lot of famous people, Rob Reiner, I give you a whole list of people who certainly do believe in conspiracy, but they don't know the facts. They don't understand the facts. They, they, don't, they just don't know it. And so, yeah, they, they, of course they believe in conspiracy. A lot of people do. Um, let's go back to the wounds of JFK. We don't have to talk about where is, you know, what Gerald Ford did with the editing of a report. We have the picture of where the back wound is. We know exactly where it is. Um, we don't understand. You know, you can't change the location of the wound with words, particularly when we have the picture. If you turn that picture sideways, you will see the back wound is far higher than the throat wound. We know the fibers of the shirt were outwardly based um, at the throat. The bullet went in one direction in the, in the back of the neck through the throat, front to back. Even Cyril Wecht agrees with that. It's not well, even I, up I, for debate. And, and, and if I could add, though, I mean, JFK's shirt and, and his suit coat, they show the back wound where I and Gerald Ford and others talk about it being five and a half inches below the top of the collar. That's why JFK, I mean, that's why Gerald Ford admitted he had to move that. Talking about the photographs, there, you know, there, people have a lot of debate about where that, if that back wound is shown. I think it is shown, and I think the back wound is shown in that photograph exactly where the hole is in JFK's shirt and his suit coat. I know some people claim JFK had, had his suit coat way bunched up high, you know, five inches up. But, but, but the Zapruder film does not show that. Oh, sure does. I can show you many, many pictures of his, of his coat bunched all throughout the motorcade. And, and, Lots and, of pictures. Well, and, and, but we can see about when he's shot, roughly, in the Zapruder film. You don't see the coat and the shirt all that bunched up. Like I say, the, to me, the, and, and many other people, I will be happy the, the, to the see bullet in the back and lines up perfectly. Gentlemen, let me, uh, let me interject here because we actually have sure. to take a break. We're going to continue in a moment with uh, Fred Litwin and Lamar Waldron. Uh, if you have specific questions, we'll try and get to it. Uh, 800-848-9222. I have a lot of questions, and um, you know, we Lamar's made his case for the ballistics evidence. Then I ask what the actual plot might have been. A lot of people have talked about various theories over the years, more than I can count. I'm going to get Lamar's theory, and I'll get Fred to respond to uh, whatever that theory happens to be. This is the other side of midnight. On this, the 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Straight ahead, the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's 
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Very pleased to be joined by Fred Litwin. His book is Oliver Stone's Film Flam, The Demagogue of DLA Plaza, and Lamar Waldron, uh, and a veteran investigative journalist whose books include the hidden history of the JFK assassination. Lamar, there have been so many theories about if there was a conspiracy, who was responsible. I've heard that the theory that the mob was responsible because they were unhappy with Robert F. Kennedy's uh, prosecution of them, particularly in light of their help winning John F. Kennedy the 1960 election. I've heard the theory that uh, elements of the uh, security state, including elements within the CIA, might have been responsible because they didn't like uh, John F. Kennedy's purported plans to draw down from Vietnam and to pursue detente with the Soviet Union. Roger Stone has a book uh, pointing at Lyndon Johnson as the man who's primarily responsible. There are all sorts of other theories, including the the accident theory, including the theory that uh, it had something to do with even aliens. I'm curious where you come down on this, Lamar. Uh, Based on your research, what do you think is the most likely entity or entities that were responsible for Kennedy's killing? Based on my 35 years of research, including 33 of those full-time, in interviewing more than two dozen close associates of John and Robert Kennedy, starting with JFK's Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, I, I believe what Robert Kennedy believed. I believe the conclusion of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the fourth government committee, and as Fred knows, the House Select Committee concluded that JFK was likely killed by a conspiracy Acoustic evidence was a small part of that, but they had a mountain of evidence, and they told us who they thought was responsible. They pointed to two godfathers, uh, Carlos Marcello, the godfather of Louisiana and much of Texas, including Dallas, and uh, Santo Traficante of Florida as having, quote, from their final report, the motive, means, and opportunity, end quote, to have killed JFK. Bobby Kennedy knew that. He told one of his close aides, Richard Goodwin, whom I talked to, Bobby Kennedy said, yeah, it was Carlos Marcello. Um, and so you don't have to believe in a gigantic conspiracy with, uh, and I'm sure Fred would agree with me on this, it's ridiculous to think that, you know, J. Edgar Hoover and Lyndon Johnson and shadowy generals, and you don't have to believe in that. Just, it, it was a small, tightly held conspiracy, and Bobby Kennedy eventually uncovered part of that. I talked to one of his investigators who looked into that for him. And like I say, the House Committee, House Select Committee got it right. The last investigating committee, the Assassination Records Review Board that I helped on a confidential basis, as documents now released show, uh, they even came up with a confession of Carlos Marcello should, should the mob, uh, to, that, that... to JFK's murder. Now, 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 how they did that was they did use a couple of CIA people 
uh, a guy by the name of David Morales, who also later confessed, another guy by the name of Bernard Barker. And by the way, Bernard Barker is a great example of somebody who was working for the mafia. He was a CIA agent, and he was a Cuban exile. So people like to pretend those are all three different theories. But, you know, they could, you, could, you could have one person, Bernard Barker, uh, whom two different independent witnesses, including one law enforcement, said was the fake Secret Service agent on the grassy knoll, because there were no Secret Service agents on the ground in Dealey Plaza uh, at, you know, b- before the shooting. And so, so that's the conspiracy. And, and the mafia was able to infiltrate JFK's top secret plan to overthrow Fidel Castro on December the 1st, 1963, 10 days after Dallas. Mafia was barred from that plan, was banned from reopening their casinos, but they knew they could use the secrecy around that to force not just the CIA, but even Robert mm-hmm. Kennedy himself to cover up a lot of information. Let, let me let me get Fre- controlling that. Let me get Fred uh, to weigh in here. Um, Fred, it does follow a logical course of thinking that the mob was upset for their perceived betrayal by the Kennedys, and Robert F. Kennedy was so aggressive in prosecuting the mo- the mob. The mob kills people. The mob has a broad network. It's not crazy to think that uh, they may have been involved in the murder of someone that they were deeply unhappy with. Tell me about the the mob theory, and um, if you can, touch upon some of those confessions that uh, that Lamar alluded to just now. Well, tomorrow, I'm in Dallas right now. I'm going to go to the Grassy Knoll tomorrow, where I'm sure James Files is going to be there, who is yet another person who has confessed to the crime. Uh, there's no shortage of people who have confessed to murdering Kennedy. Right, including Woody Harrelson's um, father, right? Yeah, so what? I mean, I, I just have to go back to the, what the House Select Committee on Assassination said. They said that Lee Harvey Oswald fired three shots and killed JFK. They said it was likely a conspiracy, but we now know that the acoustics evidence which is what they relied on because we have their draft report before the acoustics evidence came in and they said no conspiracy. The acoustics evidence has been debunked. It's phony. It's not right. And all we're left with from the House Select Committee on Assassinations is Lee Harvey Oswald fired three shots. If you want to say there's a conspiracy, you're going to have to figure out how that all fits in with Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, and, and, and I'd be happy to explain that right now if you'd like to hear it, Fred. No, no, I'm not finished. I mean, you know, I'm not finished. Okay. The real problem with the mob theory, again, is, is certainly the mob could do it. And they certainly didn't like Kennedy, but they could not control the cover-up. They could not, they could not be sure they would get away with it. It's not good enough to kill Kennedy. You have to get away with it, because if you get caught, it's even worse. And that they could not be sure of. And so there's just no evidence the mob was involved. And, I, and all the evidence, all the evidence points to Lee Harvey Oswald. It was his gun. The cartridge cases were traced back to the gun. The bullet fragments traced back to his gun. He killed Officer Tippett that afternoon. It was his revolver. The cartridge cases traced back to his gun. All the eyewitnesses either saw him kill Tippett, one witness, and all the others saw him fleeing, emptying his gun. It all is, leads back to Lee Harvey Oswald. And who is Lee Harvey Oswald? The world's biggest loner. He had no friends. He had very few associates. Um, I, I, in fact, today I've been spending time with Ruth Payne. I, I spent a large part of today with Ruth Payne. She said every time Lee Harvey Oswald came back to 
her her house on weekends, all he did was watch television. Mm. In his rooming house, after work, he would just sit in his room and read. He had no friends. Gentlemen, let me... He been part of the conspiracy. Uh, so, uh, since we're talking about Oswald... Oh, well, Fred, Fred I hate to interrupt. Go ahead. I, I would like to point out, so uh, Lee Harvey Oswald had, had definite connections to Carlos Marcello. He worked for him briefly in the summer of 1963. And, and Lee Harvey Oswald's father died, I believe, even before he was born. So the only father figure in Lee Harvey Oswald's life was a bookie for Carlos Marcello. And so, so Lee Harvey Oswald definitely had ties to organized crime. Oswald's mother dated uh, Carlos Marcello gangsters. And so, uh, you know, so there is a big connection there. One thing Fred has not addressed, and I hope we can talk about, it, is, is the attempt to kill uh, JFK in Tampa, Florida, four days before Dallas, that was completely withheld that. from all the investigating committees. I want to talk about that, Tampa. There is absolutely no evidence of a plot in Tampa. Absolutely none. There was no plot. There were two small threats of people, the Secret Service. Uh, one was mentally ill. One was a young kid. There was no plot to kill JFK in Tampa. No evidence of it. As people know that have read my book, I was the first person to interview the police chief of Tampa at that time who did tell me there was a plot different than the ones that Fred has just mentioned. And, and he was told to keep quiet about it, first by JFK after he advised JFK to cancel his, his long motorcade because of this threat. JFK couldn't do that because he had to deliver a speech uh, that night directed toward his ally high in the Cuban government. And then, and then uh, the police chief got a call from someone in Bobby Kennedy's office that I later interviewed the next day saying, keep this out of the newspapers. But one small article did crop up uh, the day after JFK was uh, killed, Mullins, uh, police chief Mullins of Tampa said, well, okay, I figured at this point, people need to know that what just happened in Dallas almost happened in Tampa. So there's one small article. I did not fly back in a time machine and plant this article. And it, and it talks about the threat in Tampa. It quotes, it quotes a Secret Service file that has never been released. And the description issued in Tampa matches Lee Harvey Oswald more closely than the first description issued in Dallas. And when I was the first person to ever tell any of the government investigating committees about this, that the Assassination Records Review Board, I told them about it. And a few weeks later, and this is in their final report, the Secret Service destroyed their records covering the time of the Tampa attempt, because the Secret Service knew they had been hiding that from the public and the other committees. So they literally broke the law and destroyed the files surrounding the Tampa attempt. But like I say, you, you can go back and look at that one little article that slipped out the day after JFK died, and it's pretty remarkable. Lamar, let me ask you about uh, Oswald, because there seem to be, among conspiracy theorists, two camps. One being that Oswald was just one of several shooters, the other being, as Oswald said... Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back up, man! Come on, man. No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I live in the Soviet Union. I'm just a patsy. That Oswald said he's just a patsy. Where do you fall, Lamar? Do you sure. think I mean, Oswald you, you, you was, was one of so, several so Oswald shooters? was a terrible shot. People love to say Oswald was a Marine marksman. Well, what people don't say is that there were three levels of shooters in the Marine 
and Marksman was the lowest level. And the last time he qualified, he only made that by one shot. And frequently in practice, as his fellow Marines said, he would not just miss the bullseye. He would sometimes miss the entire target. So, yeah, the mafia would never use someone like Oswald except as a patsy. Uh, and, and they and, – and, But he and, was and one of the Marcello shooters, told, you believe. FBI agent, they had a couple of, of hitmen imported – uh, from Italy just for this job. There was another French assassin, Michael Victor Mertz, who was deported from Dallas the day after uh, JFK was shot. He was certainly capable of, of killing JFK. So, so yeah, they, they would use experienced professionals, and Oswald would just be used as what he said, a, a patsy. But, but you believe that he was a part of the assassination? No, he... no I, I, I don't at all. There's a great memo. David Bellin was, uh, I, I guess you would, uh, he was one of the, the uh, Warren Commission investigators. He wrote a great memo showing that Oswald had enough money when he fled the school book depository to, um, and Ruby didn't shoot him there, he shot him later, uh, uh, to get down to Mexico City. So Oswald, as, as, as Fred, I'm sure, would agree, had been to Mexico City in, uh, in uh, I believe it was late September before the assassination on the 22nd, tried to get into Cuba. Uh, many people, including people that were in the Marines with him, uh, uh, think that Oswald was a low-level intelligence agent uh, because he was one of uh, uh, five people to go, young American men, to go to Russia around the same time. And four of those, including Oswald, came back with Russian wives. Uh, l- Fred, uh, even Marina Oswald, Oswald's widow, uh, subscribes to that. She has said she believes her husband was an FBI informant. She's had different stories over the years, but that's been at least one. Uh, do, do you lend any credence to that? No, he wasn't an FBI informant. He'd be the last person. What would he inform on? He was the last person that would be an FBI informant. He he couldn't hold down a job. He could barely grease coffee machines. He was mostly unemployed. He could barely write. He couldn't spell. Um, He was the last person you would use. And by the way, I should add, he was a very good shot. He qualified as a sharpshooter in the Marines. If you check his Marine scorebook, they're really excellent scores. Excellent scores. The only reason he didn't do well towards the end of his time in the Marines he didn't care anymore. He was disillusioned, didn't care, and he told that he told Delgate, he told the solo marine, I don't care. So he had stopped caring, but he was an excellent, excellent shot. And the shots in Daly Plaza were easy. The first shot was fifty-five yards, the third shot was eighty-five yards, really easy shots. He had eight to ten seconds for the three shots. Really easy, and he was a good shot. Fred, one of the things that I think has fed into the notion in a lot of Americans' minds that there was a conspiracy was the fact that the assassin Oswald was himself killed by uh, by Jack Ruby. And Jack Ruby said some very uh, cryptic things. One of the things that he suggested, and people that buy into the Lyndon Johnson theory often point to this, was he said this. So he's talking to reporters and he says if Adley Stevenson were vice president, there never would have been an assassination of our beloved President uh, Kennedy. And somebody uh, shouts something intelligible and he said, look at the man that's there now. Um, What do you think of that uh, comment from Jack Ruby? And if uh, regardless of what you think of that, why did Ruby kill Oswald? 
Well, it's a bit of a convoluted story, but basically Ruby uh, was Jewish. She was very, very sensitive to anti-Semitism. On the morning of November 22nd, there was a full page out of the Dallas Morning News criticizing Kennedy's foreign policy. It was signed by Bernard Weissman, which was a Jewish name. Ruby saw that, and he was quite upset by the ad. And after the assassination, he was even more upset. He was, he was even upset that the ad had a black border, which to him meant death. And all, all of a sudden, he really wondered whether this Bernard Weissman was, was somehow involved in the assassination, and he worried that perhaps Jews would be blamed for the assassination. He actually tried to find Bernard Weissman. He went to the post office looking for him, trying to find out who is this guy. And at the same time he did that, he also took pictures of the impeached Earl Warren billboards around Dallas, both of which had a post office box. He thought they were somewhat related. And that was his turn to a downward spiral mentally. He was going downhill mentally. He was taking diet pills. It just so happened that on Sunday morning, he had closed his club. He had to wire one of his strippers money. He went to the Western Union office at 11.17. He wired money. Four minutes later, he noticed there was a commotion at the police station. It was, a, it was less than a block away. And he went down, and it was, a, it was serendipity. He killed Oswald. It was an impulsive act, which is why, after the fact, Ruby came up with different reasons, mm-hmm. because it was impulsive. He said he wanted to save Jackie from coming to a trial. Then he said he wanted to show that Jews had balls. He kept on changing his story because it was an impulsive act. All right. We're going to get uh, Lamar to weigh in on the assassination of Oswald in a moment. And then uh, the phones are just jammed. We'll try and do a lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. My guests are Lamar Waldron and Fred Litwin. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Sixty years ago today, the world changed. The uh, assassination of John F. Kennedy, the first president since uh, William McKinley to be assassinated. This very different than the McKinley assassination because this took place in an era of television. And a lot of people refer to that as the moment when America lost its innocence, whether it's true or not. It, it does have a lot of resonance with a lot of folks, and a lot of people still remember it. I was talking with somebody today 
or yesterday, technically, that said they remembered vividly exactly what happened walking out of school and seeing just all the mothers there to pick up their children crying. And uh, that is not an uncommon theme for people that remember what happened 60 years ago today. Joined by Fred Litwin. He thinks Oswald acted alone. He's the author of Oliver Stone's film Flam, the demagogue of Dealey Plaza, and Lamar Waldron, who's written uh, three books on the Kennedy assassination. He's been called the ultimate JFK historian by Variety. Uh, Lamar, I asked Fred about uh, the uh, situation involving uh, Ruby's killing of Oswald. What do you think that suggests from your perspective? Well, I I can tell you what happened. So you will often hear Jack Ruby referred to as a Dallas nightclub owner. He wasn't. He didn't own the Carousel Club, a semi-sleazy strip club across from a nice hotel in Dallas. Um, The FBI tried to figure out, well, who does own the Carousel Club? And they looked at his family. So they found the owner of a barbecue shack who was a good friend of Ruby's named Ralph Paul. Now, Ruby owned in today's dollars, and I'm converting all the numbers into today's dollars so you can really get the effect. In 1963, Ruby owned, owed the IRS the modern-day equivalent of $240,000. Supposedly, the 50% owner of the Carousel Club was this bar- barbecue shack owner named Ralph Paul who kept loaning Ruby money that he knew, you know, Ruby owed the IRS in today's dollars, $240,000. This barbecue shack owner, and this is according to the FBI and the House Select Committee, eventually had had invested $180,000 in today's money in this sleazy little strip club, which makes no sense. I mean, where does a, a barbecue shack owner get that kind of money? And the FBI could never figure out until the 1980s who owned the other 50%. And by the way, Ralph Paul just walked away from that investment, you know, kind of owned the biggest tourist trap in Dallas after Ruby shot Oswald, but didn't. Well, it turns out, as an FBI informant found from Carlos Marcello himself, the owner of the Carousel Club was Carlos Marcello, who owned many nightclubs in Dallas. That's how Dallas was able to have, I believe it was five gay bars in 1963. You might think, wait, that's a pretty conservative city for 63. Well, they were they could be open because Marcello had to fix in with the police. And so basically, Jack Ruby was a longtime gangster. He was from Chicago, spent time in Tampa looking for strippers. And of course, he lived in Dallas. And so again, we talked about the Tampa attempt four days before Dallas. There was another plan where JFK had to cancel his entire, not just his motorcade, but his entire trip in Chicago, uh, 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 the first, second of, of uh, November three weeks before Dallas. So Ruby, I think, would have had the same job in any of those places because, as Carlos Marcello told a reliable FBI informant, uh, Ruby only managed the Carousel Club. This longtime mob associate had been caught stealing from the till, you know, and and, and that's why Ruby owed so much on taxes because Ruby had been pocketing that money. And so basically he was called to Churchill Farms, this gigantic estate, uh, swampy estate Marcella has outside of Dallas in, in June of 1963 and basically said, look, you know, you're, not, you're not leaving here alive unless you agree to do something, you know, which is because to, to go into a police basement where you know a lot of cops, you know, and, and you're very close to the cops because you're one of the payoff men for the Dallas police, you know, and shoot the number one prisoner in America live on TV, that, that takes a lot of guts, you know, because there's a good chance you're going to get shot. But, but Ruby, as Marcello told, a reliable FBI informant, had no choice. So that's who Jack Ruby was. And Ruby probably would have had the same role 
of, of silencing the patsy if the assassination had occurred in Chicago in early November, and if it had occurred in Tampa. So Ruby was the ideal man because he had shown he could keep his mouth shut. Ruby had a small role in the heroin network that flowed up from Mexico through Dallas. And, and that's another big thing Santo Traficante and Carlos Marcelo had in common was, was their heroin network. And so, so Ruby was a low-level mob guy who had gotten caught stealing from the till and basically given an offer he couldn't refuse. And so he had to go into that basement. And by the way, he tried to kill Ruby. I, I'm sorry. Ruby tried to kill Oswald on the Friday night, the night the assassination happened. He tried to get into a room with Oswald while from reports, he was packing a gun, but he was stopped from going in to that room. So he was, and then he tried to apparently talk a cop into killing Oswald that night at a long meeting at a parking garage. Okay. So, so that was that was Ruby's job. By the way, Ruby was not identified as a mob associate in public. In, in, in the news media until the late 70s. All right, L- Lamar, a lot of people very eager to chat with uh, with both of you. What I'm going to ask all the callers to do, as many as we get to here, please, one sentence, 15 seconds, and then I'm going to have uh, these gentlemen, uh, starting with Fred, give a lightning round response. So if you can keep your questions concise and brief. David in Staten Island, what's your question? Uh, bullet type, um, small hole, enter, big hole, exit. Is that true? I, I don't even understand the question, um, so I'm going to skip it rather than try to figure it well, out. I, I, I think what he's asking, this would apply to the throat wound. Generally, when, a, when a, a person is shot, the entrance wound is small, bullet goes in, it expands, exit wound is large. All right. Um, any response on that one, Fred, at all? No, we, we have the autopsy x-rays and photos, and every forensic pathologist says, says the same thing, that the photographs and x-rays prove the shot entered Kennedy at the base of the neck and exited from the throat. Every forensic pathologist, including Sirolect, agrees with that. You know, rather than try and squeeze in another call, uh, Fred, I'm going to give you the the last word uh, on that. I want to thank both of you for staying up late or getting up early. I know you're both very much in demand today. I look forward to talking with both of you in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Frank. Uh, For those of you that are on hold, if you want to comment on anything these gentlemen said, I'll be happy to take your call after the top of the hour. A lot of other stuff to get to as well. Uh, This is The Other Side of Midnight, 800-848-9222. Now, more than ever, it's vitally important to keep asking questions.